Hi, this is Eric Lofholm. I want to welcome all of you to our weekly Influence Show. Today, I'm with my partner, Dr. Donald Moyne. Dr. Moyne, how are you doing today? Doing great. I'm very excited about our podcast guest today. Outstanding. Well, we have an incredible guest. I am so excited to have Dan Schneider with us today. And, and I met, I'm meeting Dan for the first time today, but I, I met him through the show The Pharmacist on Netflix. And I was drawn to the show because of the title, because Dan, as I mentioned to you, my dad's a pharmacist, and I was curious about what the show was, and I watched it, and it was just blew my mind. Your story just blew my mind. And we're going to get into your story about how you solved your son's murder, how you shut down Dr. Claggart, how you were instrumental in uh, shutting down Purdue Pharma, multi-billion dollar company. I mean, just mind-boggling. Dan, um, thank you for joining us today. I'm going to be a little honest now. Uh, you know, the, the show didn't show many failures, but I, I had my share of failures. A, a, as you know, the guy that hit Mr. Wolf's home run usually strikes out the most, too. So uh, uh, persistence is is the key there. And I did have some minor victories, uh, and I'm proud of that. And, and, and uh, appreciate you guys and what you guys are doing and help spread my message. And we all need a little motivation and, 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 and good stories and people right and wrong. So uh, I, I welcome this. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to use our platform to help you reach even more people. I mean, with Netflix, you've you know, touched the whole world. Um, but why don't you take us back and just share with us from the, the whatever the beginning part of the story that you'd like to share, and we'll go from there. Well, I guess I'll start off with, you know, you can go way, way back, okay, you know, but uh, I, I know we got a, some kind of a time constraint whatsoever, okay? So I, I'll start off with that we had a great life, okay? I, I became a pharmacist. My wife helped support me while, while I was in school, but later she became a stay-at-home mom. We had two beautiful children, my son and then, uh, and then a daughter. We had this, I don't know if we realized it at the time, but now that I look back on it, this storybook life almost, okay. Yeah, we had a nice house, nice cars. We loved Christmas. We had a 17-foot Christmas tree. A lot of people looked at us and called us the Griswolds because we would take, like, vacations, and we had this big, huge Christmas tree, and they could relate that. And not only that, you know, we had the kids in the back seat that were complaining about the music we were playing. And back then they didn't have the ear pods and all that kind of stuff. So they kind of had to listen to us, you know, and sometimes we could get them to sing along with these real corny songs to them. But uh, uh, so we had the storybook life. And then all of a sudden, April 13th, and it, it, it rose around. And uh, my son, who we never knew had any kind of you know, serious drug issues. Uh, he did smoke some pot, okay? And we had talked to him about that, and I was really against that, okay? And, uh, uh, but never ever really thought he had progressed anything beyond that. And he was still living with us. He was functioning. He was going to school. We, we now realize after his grades did trail down a little bit in that last period of time, but we, we, didn't, we didn't grasp that at the time exactly, okay? Wasn't until after that we really took a look at some things, okay? But anyway, long story short is, you know, uh, he leaves our house and he says, I'm going to go out and get some notes for a history test that I'm taking tomorrow or two days from now. And he always checked in with us. And the good news is he checked in with us and he said, uh, you know, something like, Mom, I'm going to get these notes and uh, uh, 
and we said we love each other, which is, which is really, we didn't realize it, but that was the last time we were going to hear from him. Okay. And so any event, we basically kind of go to sleep. It's 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Okay. Uh, we go to sleep at two o'clock in the morning. We get a loud knock on the door. Now this is April 14th. Okay. And uh, we get a loud knock on the door and we kind of wake up and throw a robe on or something. We go out to the door and it's police and it's just really hitting us what's going on. In fact, we think our son's upstairs in the bedroom. Okay. And uh, they, they asked to come in. We said, yes. And they, they, they told asked us to sit down and we said, yes. And I thought I heard them say my son had been shot. Okay. Which they did say that, but apparently they may have also said he's been killed. And for some reason, I didn't register that. Okay. And neither obviously did the mom or if she heard it, she didn't care. She said, Oh no, he's upstairs in his room. But this time his sister, Christie's come out with all the hoopla that's going on. She runs to his room thinking he's in his room. There got to be some mistake. Okay. Well, it wasn't a mistake. Our son was murdered and we would later find out he was murdered, attempting to buy drugs. There was a lot of shame involved, a lot of guilt involved, a, a lot of, you know, questioning God, uh, 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 you know, what do we do wrong to deserve this? All the things that, you know, that you would go through and compounded by the fact that not only was he murdered, but he was murdered in a dirty situation, okay, that we had no knowledge of, okay. And so, you know, again, the next part of the story is, you know, even still, he was my son and, and he, he was a good kid. We never got a detention, never had fights. Uh, peace-loving kid, and uh, I, I knew that this was a, a bad snapshot of his life, okay, and and so we went to the police and asked them to help us find his killer. I knew that they would, it it would be a little bit of a chore, little that I know it was an impossible chore, okay, but I went to them and offered to pay money for overtime, okay, and, uh, you know, they said, oh, no, no, you don't have to do that, don't worry about it, we're going to we're going to take care of everything and da 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 and so on and so forth. And reading between the lines, I could pick up real early on that. My wife didn't pick up on this, and I had a brother that was kind of helping supervise me while I was in this tizzy that I was in. And they all kind of thought, well, you're being a little unfair with the police. I said, no, no, something's going on here. These guys, just intuition, okay? And sure enough, a lot of people question why I did all this recording. So I'll kind of answer this while I'm telling the story right now, Okay. I would ask the police to do something and then I would try to give them some time. Okay. And then I would call them back and say, well, how did that work out? Okay. And they would say, you didn't ask us that. And I actually doubted my own sanity. I, I you know, I knew I was grieving. I knew I was mixed up, you know? And so I started recording just to see what I actually told them and what they actually said. Mm -hmm. Okay. I didn't think of it as an mm -hmm. investigatory tool at, at first, it, 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 in, in a sense. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that I knew what I was saying and that I wasn't crazy. It made me feel like I was crazy, mm -hmm. okay? And so, and that went on and on and on. Later on, I would use that investigating the doctor and kind of documenting the whole story. I, I also had difficulty speaking to anybody about what I was doing. Most people thought I was crazy going in that neighborhood that I might get killed. There was a, an element of risk. My wife was scared to death, but usually I could kind of talk her into it. And she had lost a son and she wanted the case solved. But her friends would always say, you got to stop Danny. Okay. 
Yeah, you got to stop. He's going to get killed. Okay. And so I'd have to talk her back down and, and, and whatnot. And I knew all this was going on, but there were many times I couldn't tell her what I was doing. And so if you listen to my tapes and they didn't play all the tapes, okay, there's humpteen tapes, okay. I many times was just talking to myself. I was praying and talking to myself, you know, and it was like the recorder became my friend. It actually became, now I know this borderlines on insanity, okay, whether it makes sense or not, but it was a coping mechanism, okay, but it turned out to be kind of brilliant <laughs> in a sense, okay, it actually helped me solve the case. So long story short, the police aren't doing anything, I beat the bushes and beat the bushes and beat the bushes, okay, and eventually it comes down to, as I said before, when we, when we talked, I said, I had I had early on, we, we went and put up posters and we went on TV and uh, we uh, raised an, a, a reward and uh, we went and talked to the, the, the black churches in the area. We, uh, we went and walked the streets in the area and interviewed people. You know, we did everything that you needed to do. And, but I usually, for a good while, I was checking with the police and they would say, well, I would say, well, I'm going to do this. And they'd say, don't do it. And most of the time I tried to adhere to what they said because they said you can mess the case up, okay, which kind of turned out to be bullshit in a way, okay. Uh, you know, it, it was a screwed case anyway, okay. But the, uh, uh, but I kind of tried to adhere to them. One of the things that I asked them, I said, I want to call all the people in the neighborhood. And they said, no, that, no, no, that, that's great. That'll mess up the waters. We, we get all kind of oddball shit and whatnot, okay. But eventually, when I gave up on the police and knew that they had given up on the case, and uh, I was I was making some progress, I, I eventually said, "Dang it, I'm I'm going to make these calls." Now I, I had tremendous odds against me because again, most of the most of the people in that area didn't have phones back then. Okay, and and and, and, and even if you reached them, who, what were the chances? So it, it's really kind of cornbally, but but I took a circumference out drew a circle around where my son was killed. And I, I went out maybe a quarter mile or half mile. I don't remember exactly what the deal was. And then I, I went to the Haynes directory. I took uh, uh, all the street names and went to the Haynes directory, which was back then before computers. This is where you went to find all the addresses and all the phone numbers. And I, and I shot copies at the library and I brought them home. And so I sit down and, you know, I had, at one time burned out in pharmacy. I had worked in pharmacy for about 15 years. I kind of burnt out. I went into sales and I, I learned a lot of sales techniques. Okay. And I, I learned to accept rejection. And I, I learned that, you know, you know, you make 10 calls and you get maybe one response or whatever. Okay. And so fortunately I had the confidence. I, I had not only the determination. Okay. But I had the confidence that I had done this before. Okay. And so I started cold calling and I must have cold called that first day. And what was the script? The script was pretty much, and I still pretty much got it, is my son was murdered at the corner of Dauphine and Frostall about nine months ago. The police think they've solved the case. They haven't. Do you or do you know someone who might know something about this? And then what would people well, do when you said that? Well, lots script? of times it was some young kid, okay, that <laughs> you was talking to. And you had to weed your way through that. Maybe they'd get the parents. Maybe they wouldn't get the parents. Uh, some people were, were angry, okay. Uh, some people hung up. Uh, some people went along. I got some good tips, 
you know, there were some people say, well, you know, I, I didn't really see it, but, but, you know, I heard this and I heard that, and, you know, I would make notes. I was recording all those calls. I got the, the recordings of all the calls. The crazy thing is though, when I finally got to the girl who, who, who uh, down to a person who actually had seen the event and knew the whole story, uh, I didn't know it, but my tape ran out. Okay. Oh, I had wow. to go back and I, I had to admit this to the cops because I had to go back and try to walk her through, through the same things that she had told me, but the cops could even tell, well, yeah. you know, you're kind of leading her on. Okay. And I said, well, yeah, that's because this isn't the original tape. I didn't have it. Okay. So I kind of blew that, but that, but that still worked. Okay. Yeah. Eventually. So anyway, I, I get down to like my last call of the day. I give them a little spiel. I'm about ready to, to give up. Now I'm going to go back and recall some people because you get a lot of busy signals and no answers and all that stuff. And I had it all marked down. Okay. And she said, yeah, I saw it all. Okay. I, I called Crime Stop already. I, 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 I gave them the killer's name. She said, I knew the killer. He, 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 he I babysat the killer. I, I'm good friends with the killer's mother. Wow. And I was just blown away. I, it was like, I couldn't hardly believe it. You know, I had almost started to give up in a sense. Okay. And, and, and call it a miracle. I, I don't know what you call it because I happened to get her. If, if I'd have got her, her mother was totally against this. Her mother probably would not even acknowledge that. Okay. And her mother was still could have answered the phone or one of the young kids might have answered the phone, but bingo, I got it. And I got the whole story. So, it still took another nine months, okay, of a lot of her almost not coming forward, uh, of of the, the DA and all I'm saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Snyder, you know, you're not going to get justice. And I will bring in another little interesting part of the story, kind of a touching part of the story. I think it was in the uh, documentary, but I'm not sure. That documentary was originally supposed to be six parts. They cut it to four. Okay. And, and even with the six parts, mm -hmm. you never cover the entire story. There's so many sub stories. Okay. Uh, but one of the things that happened was I didn't necessarily believe that witness as good as she sounded. And as much as I thought it was a miracle, the police had arrested somebody. And at one time the killer was the witness. And I didn't believe the kid was capable of killing. He was like 15 years of age. I had put him in my car. I had, I had become friends with this kid. You know, on one of the tapes, I'm praying for this kid because I think that the cops have roughed him up and made him make mistakes and all this stuff. I'm on a kid's side, okay? And so I, I want to make sure I got the right person here, okay? And so one of my neighbors not far down the street came over one day and said, you know, Dan, you got to stop going up there. You're going to get killed. And I said, I know there's some risk. I said, but I do I do some things that you know, limit my risk. You know, I, you know I, I didn't go there at night, obviously. I, I would go there and I would time myself. Okay. And I would, you know, spend maybe 30 or 40 minutes. And then I was out of there. I figured by the time they figured I was in the neighborhood and come looking for me, I could do that. I also many times borrowed cars and used different cars to go in there so that they wouldn't maybe recognize the car. So I wasn't totally dumb, dumb on this. Okay. Uh, but there was still risk. So in any event, the neighbor comes over and says, you're going to get killed. He says, you don't know the story. He said, but, you know, I used to be a drug addict. I used to live in that area. He said, I've been shot at. I was uh, beat up people. They beat up me, you know, and I, I know that area like the back of my arms. I've been clean for a long time. He was living in a house 
couple doors from me in an upper income area, okay, at least upper middle class. And uh, he said, look, I'll go with you. And he said, do you have a gun? And I said, no, I don't have a gun. He said, you're crazy. And I said, well, I, I don't really know how to use guns. And, you know, I'd probably shoot myself or shoot some innocent person, okay? And I didn't have time to learn guns, okay? And my son was killed with a gun. I kind of hated guns, okay? So, but I knew I was taking some some risk, okay? Now, I did a couple of times let people go with me that had guns. They insisted on going with me, and I let them go. So he rode with me shotgun, so to speak. And I would interview people. And we did this two or three times. He got kind of aggravated. He said, let me tell you. He says, you're pretty sure it's this person or that person? I said, yeah, we, we're pretty sure. I said, he said, well, I'm going to bring you to a retired drug dealer. I said, retired drug dealer? What, what is this? You know, it's like surreal, okay? And he said, well, it's an old guy now, okay? He's probably 70, 80 years of age, an old black man, okay? And he used to be the kingpin. Well, he's no longer the kingpin, okay? And he's up in age, but he still has a network of knowing, getting answers. So he brings me to this guy, and I sit down with this guy, and the guy asked me the two names of the kids that might have killed him. I say kids. One was 15, 16. The other one was like 22, okay? And he says, and, and, and he says, okay, he says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'm pretty sure I can find out which one it is, and, and, and definitely. He said, people in the neighborhood know what happened, okay? And he says, do you want me to have him killed? Wow. I was just blown away. I was just blown away now to set the stage of this. I really sort of considered it. And a lot of people can't mm. quite understand that, but, but you got to understand now the police are telling me you're not going to solve this case. You let it go. He's going to get killed on the street. Okay. And you, 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 you go back to your wife and it'll just let this go even if you find a witness, even if you find the killer, even if you do all this, put this together, there's no way you're going to get in his neighborhood this poor black kid that's 15 or 16. My kid, my son's 22. He's upper middle class. He's a white kid in the neighborhood. Okay. There's no way the jury's going to find him guilty. And I didn't even know about. The gentleman, I want to jump in and yeah. take us in a yeah, different yeah. direction in just a moment. You're going to have to do did the, did the guy who this uh, former kingpin guy, did he tell yes, you? Yes, he ultimately did. He ultimately did tell me. Yeah. But I'll be honest with you, by the time, it took a couple of weeks to get that answer. Okay. But yeah, truthfully, there were a few other things going on at that time that helped me consolidate. Uh, in, in, in now, let, me, let me just jump in because I want to go take us in a different direction. But I want to give all of our listeners a little context here because um dan has there's many aspects to his story and um i i i am so impressed dan with how you show up in the world and what you do with your gifts and talents and what what dan's saying guys just to clarify is that his son was killed in a, in a really crime-ridden area of new orleans and the police were essentially not going to solve the case. And Dan solved it himself. He's not a private detective. His background is as a pharmacist. By prospecting, he cold called out of the white pages. <laughs> and, you know, most of you that are listening right now, you're salespeople, right? And we're, you know, having a hard time making our prospecting calls. And he's cold calling out of the white pages and ultimately ended up solving his 
son's murder and the person that did the crime ended up going to prison uh, because of uh, Dan's cold calling. And if that was the end of the story, it would be one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And that's just one piece of the story. So um, I want to jump ahead now and have you talk about um, maybe spend about, you know, five to eight minutes or so talking about who was Dr. Claggart and what 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 happened there and how you were okay. able to shut her down. I'm, I'm glad you did that. Move me along because I could go on forever on that story. OK, and it's an interesting story, <laughs> but it, but whatever. I OK, I solved the murder and I had actually. I had made like a promise to God, to be quite honest with you, okay? Uh, uh, if he helped me survive and my witness not get killed and I get some justice, okay, that I would go on a mission for him, okay? Now, I wanted to go on a mission anyway, okay, because I was so blindsided by my son's death and not being able to catch him before it happened or even understand what was going on. I didn't want another parent to go through that. So I was going to educate kids and I was going to educate parents, you know? That was my primary. When I made this promise to God, that was it. Now, after I saw my son's murder, my wife said, no more investigating. So I didn't really want to do any more investigating. Okay. I really didn't. But I was in a pharmacy. And this is right around the time that Purdue Pharma is really promoting OxyContin. Okay. And it and in the pain, people are starting to use pain, chronic pain. Okay. And I start seeing a different caliber person walking in my store instead of some 45-year-old guy that's limping coming in my store or 50-year-old that's limping that's coming in my store. I'm seeing 22-year-old kids that look like my son coming in the store for these high-powered opioid prescriptions. And, and I, I want to clarify something here right now because some people kind of semi-call me a hero, okay? And, and probably I would call somebody that did what I did a hero. But the reason why I feel a little bit reticent about that is this. Prior to my son's death, I don't know if I'd observed in my pharmacy with the same intensity that I did. In other words, I may have done what a lot of other pharmacists were doing at that time and, and other medical professionals kind of looking the other way, maybe kind of sensing something wasn't quite right, but it's not my job. It's not my duty. Okay. And I hope I wouldn't have been one of those guys, but I might well have been one. But my brain is lit up now. I'm an investigator, and, 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 I, and I'm worried about kids dying, and I'm worried about parents losing kids, and I'm seeing it coming in my drugstore. And it's all coming from one doctor, Dr. Cleggett. okay? And so, you know, at first, I promised my wife I wasn't going to investigate, so, you know, I called the medical board. And kind of got the runaround to where I thought, well, I don't know, either they don't care, or maybe she's bought them off. She tons of money. Now, that was probably paranoid thinking, okay? that was pro And I learned later that probably wasn't the case. I later would find out that the medical board was relying on the DEA and the FBI to shut her down. She was so out of bounds with everything that there's no way she could continue operating. But I wanted to believe that, too. Okay, so when I didn't have success with the medical board, I contacted the IRS. Oh. The, old, the, old, the old story of, of, of the, how they got one of the gangsters, I, I believe, okay? Because I knew she was uh, uh, she was getting all cash. I mean, I knew she was taking in, you know, $20,000 a night or $50,000 a night. I, I, I don't know exactly. And I, and I knew she wasn't reporting that. So 
I started thinking a million ways I could get her, okay, short of me investigating, <laughs> short of me actually putting my family and myself at risk, okay? Well, then I called my local police. It was out of their jurisdiction. They were all on board with me, okay, all right? But then I went straight to the FBI. And then the FBI said, well, you know, we appreciate what you did. We took all my evidence, videotapes that I had, because I went out and videotaped her office, okay, which is another story in and of itself, how that happened, okay. But I videotaped, I had paperwork, I had uh, recordings, okay. And so any event, I gave it to the FBI. They called me up and said, look, the DEA is ahead of us on this. So we're sending all your stuff over to the DEA, okay. And now we want you to go to DEA to follow up on this. I said, well, fine. Later, the DEA sent me back to the FBI. So I started getting a runaround with these guys, okay? And then I started getting friction from them. Number one, I can almost tell they stumble bombs. I hate to say it, okay? <laughs> I, I guess I'm getting kind of a, a bad attitude about police. The New Orleans Police Department was actually, they had New Orleans police guarding her office. Wow. So, so I discounted the New Orleans Police Department right early on. But, you know, I thought if I go to the FBI, my God, I'm going to get results. Okay. And I got the rigmarole with that almost to the point where I actually even thought the FBI was corrupt, or at least one of the agents. And believe it or not, that's a long story, but I still believe one of them may have been. Okay. But regardless if he didn't, she continued to operate. I continued to see kids dying. I, 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 I you know, I, I was frustrated, you know, so somewhere along the line though, it turned into me just not just giving them information. I started realizing they wasn't doing the job or they wasn't going to shut her down real quick, okay? And so the, the, the patients in my store were telling me that they were open up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they had hundreds of people at the office. And, you know, I actually didn't believe them. I, I, I actually thought, well, you got to be exaggerating. I mean, you know, I mean, I've heard of pill mills before, and they got pictures of them in the daytime, and there's a line of people outside the place, okay? But, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, Hundreds of cars and hundreds of people there. I mean, and if that's the case, how in the world is the FBI not shut them down or DA not shut them down or somebody shut them down? I mean, it was so ridiculously obvious. Okay. And so I, uh, it's, it's, I'm not going to go into the, the real long story. We, we, we took a trip before I'd committed to actually going after and getting personally involved and in investigating. I'd already started recording customers in the store and getting information on it okay but as far as me actually going out there and surveilling this thing and doing a lot of investigatory work i had kind of held off on that the, uh, our saints football team won a game okay uh, a playoff game way back then when it was the bags our, our team wasn't a good team and so we took a break and this is at the end of 2000 to the end of 2000 Shortly, by the way, now, this is only a couple of months after I've solved my son's murder. I'm in mega drive right now, okay? All, all, a complete, I didn't want to, I just want to talk in schools, and I'd already start talking in schools, okay? And, and, and But I'm in mega drive now, and once I touch on these people and they don't respond, I don't have much patience for this. So I take the bull by the horns, you know? I mean, somebody's got to do something about that. And I will say this. I also went to other pharmacists. I tried to get them to go to the medical board. You know, I couldn't get one other pharmacist to go with me. I, I talked to other doctors who all thought that she was a rotten doctor. I couldn't get one doctor to go with me. 
And, you know, you might say it was greed. In some cases it was. Okay, but most of them is it's not my business. That's the DA's business. I'm seeing kids die. How is this? Let me jump in for a second. I want you to speak to our audience right now about this idea of you saw something and everyone else just turned a blind eye and said, it's none of my business. And you did something about it and you ultimately got, got her shut down. But could you just speak to this idea of that we can make a difference when we see something? Just speak to, from your heart about that. Well, you know, I, I, you're a little like those kind of stories. I don't know if that's the right thing to say before this audience. Okay. Because, you know, there are times when you can put a lot of effort in and it still doesn't work. But I am a good example to that. For one thing, it's worth the try. You can sleep better. It's worth the try. Okay. But many times if you work hard enough, and in my case, work hard enough and maybe pray enough, okay, you can accomplish almost anything. And, 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 and I think that has a lot to do with how I managed to succeed some kind of way in what I did. So for anybody out there, you know, the, the message is go after it. Okay, don't don't do with the other guys that are slackers. Okay, be a be a leader. You know, be ambitious. In my case, it was righting a wrong. I don't know. In sales, maybe it isn't always righting a wrong. I will give you a little tidbit on the sales, and I don't know if your salesmen want to hear this. Okay, but many times, and this is complicated for sales. But I was a salesman myself for a while. Okay, but sometimes sales. And now that I'm on the other side, and I'm not a salesman. Okay. Sometimes sales have a perverse incentive. You make more money to do the wrong thing. Now, this is a real quagmire for a salesman. Okay. But, you know, if, if you actually start feeling that way, then you can't be a good salesman. Okay. So you either got to shit or get off the pot. You either got to change something or you have to focus on something you feel good about it. But once you buy into it and you feel like you're doing the right thing, Katie bought a door. You got to go at it. Okay. And then you can accomplish almost anything with persistence. So that that's that that's my take on that. I, you know, I was driven, okay, uh, but I had I had some skills that I didn't know I had. And I think a lot of them came from the interval that I went out into sales was about maybe seven years. Okay. I worked in pharmacy for 15. I worked in seven, seven years of sales, kind of burnt out on sales too, though. Okay. And I had a pretty good job to go back. I went back as a pharmacist. Okay. Ultimately, it was kind of great that I went back as a pharmacist. The whole story wouldn't be told. Yeah. I happened to be in the right place at the right time under the right conditions with the right skills and the right talent. Okay. To do that. <clears throat> but I'm not the only one that's like that. Okay. We, we all well, have. Jump in now. I want to, I want to cover one more key thing. And then I want to anything that Dr. Moyne wants to share, but for all of you listening right now, you know, Dan, he's a regular human being. He was a pharmacist for many years, raising his family, went into sales for seven years, went back into pharmacy, just going through life like billions of people on the planet. And then an extreme situation happened and he solved his son's murder. Then there was this doctor, this rogue doctor who was filling hundreds of prescriptions a day, killing people. IRS turned a blind eye, DEA turned a blind eye, the pharmacist, the doctor, all these people, no one wanted to deal with it. Dan got her shut down. 
And if that was the end of the story, that would be just like one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And then we went to Purdue Pharma. So give us 10 minutes about Purdue Pharma and what that was. Okay. I, I will say this, and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm too honest, okay? I, I definitely took swings at Purdue Pharma, okay? Because I started looking at, I can shut all the doctors down I want, but there's always another doctor. And Purdue's, you know, they were sending me stuff convincing me that I had to fill their prescriptions. They, they were paying for my continued education. They, they had a whole marketing scheme, okay? I hate to say it, they were great salespeople, but they were salespeople for the wrong reasons. Okay? And if, if you watch my show and if you go online and watch Dope Sick, they talk about some of the sales agents. Of course, we had a salesman on ours too that talked about the same way. Most of those people came to realize that they weren't doing the right thing. Some of them, the money made the difference. They stayed. Some of them walked away. Okay. I don't want to judge anybody. Everybody's got different things going on. Some people can figure out a way to justify or turn a blind eye. But but I actually had, even though I definitely screamed and shouted a lot about Purdue, and I later found out back then you didn't have the Facebook and social media. There were a few other guys like Dan out there going after Purdue. Some I would later even find out maybe even did more than I did, Okay. The main thing that I did is I contacted them a number of times and talked to them not about stopping their product, but I talked to them about how it was being abused and that there were methods that we could do to reduce the abuse. I wasn't trying to put them out of business at the time. I probably should have been, but I definitely wanted to curtail and make their product a little bit safer. Okay. Uh, and I didn't know all the horrible marketing things that they did and maybe I knew they had done some lying or exaggerating, okay? And I, I didn't like that, okay? But so, uh, you know, I reached out to them a couple of times, gave them ideas, and, and automatically I heard the same thing that I heard from the police, okay? And in and, and, and the FBI and the DEA, it's like, well, you know, we you know, we, we, we really helping a lot of people with pain, and we don't really see a lot of this abuse going on that you're telling us about. And, and so they wasn't really hearing, or they would well... <laughs> They were turning a blind eye, I guess. Of course, the people I was talking to were paid by Purdue Pharma, okay? Maybe they believed it themselves, okay? So, yeah, I did everything I could do. But, you know, I went to all my congressmen. I went to all my senators. I, I did a lot of the same things I had done. But I have to say, I kind of failed at that. Then nobody put a dent in Purdue Pharma. I, I made some awareness, and I get some notoriety because early on, I was – speaking out about them. Early on, I did some things to try to slow them down or stop them. Okay. So I get some accolades for that, but, but nobody touched them until 2007. 2007 was after Katrina. I had to shut down uh, all my advocacy and all in, in my investigation for a number of years before I got involved again around two, 2012. I had a period again where I went into hibernation almost okay i had a survive I, I had 10 feet of water in my house okay wow. and i had my family and whatnot you know and I, I didn't really want to investigate individual doctors anymore i did want to go after the source purdue and i tried and i hate to say it i managed to overcome the fbi and the dea and the new orleans police department okay i, I couldn't find a way to overcome purdue okay and so but one thing i did do i did some things that still might have helped because I was always searching for an answer on the, the bottom line was, can I save lives? 
Bottom line is, can I reduce the problem within my power? Okay. And so I had read about uh, the uh, one thing I started the chain of them starting to shut down pill mill doctors. They still went on for a long time. They still got to operate too long. But once I set that example, a lot of states started doing that and managed to shut down pill mill doctors. They, they got better at that. I might get a little bit of credit for that. At least I feel good about maybe I started that chain that ultimately eventually slowed it down a little bit. But what I also did was I had heard in some other states, it wasn't an original idea. I was always researching. And I'd heard in other states, they had a, something called a pharmacy monitoring program where if you are a pharmacist in your store and you get a prescription, okay, you can find out that maybe the guy down the street also filled the same prescription. There was no way to do that in the olden days. When, when your dad had his pharmacy, there was no way that he would know where the guy crossed down. So a lot of these people were going to multiple doctors and multiple pharmacies and getting 10 prescriptions, of which they weren't only fulfilling their own habit, but they were selling. So there was a lot of sales going on. Now, my risk when I put my investigation tools on and I managed to shut down Dr. Cleggett, I had threats to my life. Mm. Cleggett's goons uh, uh, followed me, okay? I, I had people who were selling pills, knew I was trying to shut her down. She was like the wholesaler. And if I shut down the wholesaler, they were paying their bills. They, they were feeding their habits and they were paying their bills. They had nice cars. And they were selling this to kids on the street, which I knew that. So how do you slow that down? Okay. Well, the pharmacy monitoring program prevents doctor shopping. I was instrumental in my state in getting that established. And then it, it probably would have happened anyway, but I, I talked to a number of other states and a lot, a lot of people contacted me and I helped gave, give them the tools to help spread the pharmacy monitoring program. And now we have curtailed prescription opioids. We know now we've drifted into the fentanyl question and we still got a lot of deaths, okay? And believe it or not, I'm trying to figure that out right now, okay? And I'm trying to do my part on that. And this is another another big problem to trying to stop. So, Fantastic. Well, Dr. Boyne, let me turn it over to you for anything you'd like to share today. Well, first, I want to give a, a very heartfelt uh, thank you, Dan, to you for telling your story so powerfully, so authentically. I've been reading some of the comments here from people. You know, they're they're very moved by your testimony here today. I think that uh, opioids, prescription drugs have touched almost every family in America. If it has not touched your family, you are just extremely, extremely lucky. And it may just it may just be a matter of time it's touched my family i lost a nephew his name was dan also i lost a 33 year old nephew to a uh, accidental opioid overdose he had uh, sleep apnea and we didn't know it but he was taking xanax to help deal with it he was getting fitted for a cpap machine yeah. he was recently married beautiful successful wife he had a very very successful business his whole life was ahead of him lots and lots of friends i went to his funeral and there were almost 300 people there they'd flown in from around the united states he was a very charismatic uh young guy he was the kind of guy you could meet once and you would just stay in touch with him and, and he would stay in touch with you so it, it was you know it, 
it was such a tragedy to have his life taken away from him like that. You know, his wife goes in, his bride comes into the, wakes up in the morning, rolls, rolls over in bed and, and realizes, that, you know, Dan's not waking up. And she calls the ambulance and, but they just, they couldn't revive him. It touches everyone's life. I've injured my back several times. I was a varsity gymnast in high school. That's when I first hurt my back. And then I've re-injured it several times in my, in my mid thirties, I developed sciatica. If you guys don't know what that is, it's a severe, severe nerve pain. It feels like it goes from like your lower back. For me, it was my right leg. It can be either leg. And it's like lightning, red hot lava going down, lightning bolts constantly going down to your foot, radiating back up. I couldn't sleep at night. I had to sleep on the floor. I had to sleep in a chair. I still couldn't sleep. And I saw doctor after doctor and they told me, you need a back operation. You need a, a spinal fusion. I read a bunch of books on that. And I learned that one third of the people get better. One third actually get worse and one third stay about the same. And I told myself, I don't like those odds. Right. I agree. And so I, I kept seeing more and more doctors and this doctor prescribed a Percocet to me. Right. And I took that and it was like a miracle drug. I could, I, I, it was so embarrassing. I was doing lots of seminars. I had clients around the United States. I was doing a little bit of international consulting. And here I was like 36 years old. I had to walk with a cane because my right leg could not support any weight or I would just crumble to the ground. And this Percocet, it made you feel superhuman. You could endure any kind of pain. They, they could give they could have given me like three or four Percocets and they could take out all my teeth. I wouldn't care. You know, that's just the feeling that you have. And I, I, I was very blessed though, because um, I didn't go to bathroom. I, I was constipated for like three days and that made my sciatica worse because it applied even more pressure to the sciatic nerve. And I had to quit. I was forced. That was a blessing. That was a it blessing. was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> Brother, it was a blessing in disguise. And I, uh, I just had, I told myself, no matter what it takes, anything is better than this constipation. And I had, you know, done some research on Percocet. How does it work? And I read it's highly addictive. And I thought, wow, I'm going to have to, you know, get off this. And, and I just, I just stopped cold Turkey. And about a year later, I found this, it was like, uh, a three month supply. I don't think it's, it's probably not even legal to, you know, give out that, that much Percocet today, but I found this stuff. I took it to the pharmacy and I said, get rid of this. I don't know what to do with it. I don't want to flush it down the toilet. They took it back, but I, it was a real blessing in disguise. I've had clients, very successful people who have been addicted to opioids and other drugs and it is very difficult. I've done everything I can to help them. You know, I find that a lot of them, they just have to get to the point where they hate their lives so much, where they tell themselves their internal script is anything is better than this. You know, I love my family. I love my friends. You know, I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to uh, kill myself, you know, or, or risk an accidental overdeath, overdose. And so, folks, this can strike. What I want to say to you is, this is not just Dan's story. This is the story of America right now. This, I, I've done research on this after my nephew Dan died 
and I read Dan's story. And you guys can go write this down. Go to Tunnel of Hope. Tunnel T U N N E L of Hope. Give some money. The life you save may be your own, maybe your parents, maybe your children, uh, a, another relative. And, you know, this is a fight that we are all in together. And what the research I've done shows that, you know, there are a lot of police officers who, because you can get injured being a cop, but they get addicted to opioids. There are judges who are addicted to opioids. Doctors, pharmacists, uh, of course. I mean, the temptation's right there. And, you know, you're in the candy store. Uh, there are uh, priests. There are uh, very, very, there's a very, very famous minister here in Southern California who is an advisor. He, he was a spiritual advisor to like three different presidents. His son, I believe, died of an opioid overdose. No one is exempt. No one, no one gets a free pass. If, if, if it hasn't touched your family, it's not because you are morally superior or just a you know superior human being. It's just because you are lucky. So we have to fight this together. I yeah, I'm not a Puritan. You know, if you want to drink a little bit of alcohol, if you want to smoke some marijuana, it's legal in like half the states now. Right. Just do so responsibly. Don't drive. But you know, I'm not a Puritan. But this is a whole other category. And then fentanyl Absolutely. is a whole other animal they're putting it in everything they're putting it in marijuana in this in that and you know, in you xanax know. Uh, you, xanax you, you may have died from laced xanax with uh if it if the if the xanax didn't kill him it's yeah. killing them now because they they fake they fake it and they say the fakes look better they are printed with you know pill presses that that produce sharper indentations it looks the fake stuff looks more real than the real stuff and don't think you can look at it and say, oh, I, I can tell this is genuine. You know, that's the real whatever it is marker. I looked it up on the Internet. You know, this is authentic. No, no, no. And, you know, as they say, the first time is the last time with fentanyl. The first time. I appreciate is the comments. 